So when somebody holds a belief that is different than yours, obviously future Stuart would say, please listen to that because maybe, maybe it turns, you know, maybe this is going to help us be smarter if we listen to this. But present Stuart is saying, you're trying to tear a hole in my identity. You're like, you're trying to tear a hole in who I am. And so that now becomes like the tiger that you have to push away. Mm. Um, And I think that that's a lot of what the battle is. It's like, My name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, So what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Annie Duke. She is the author of Thinking in Bets. Uh, She's also a speaker and consultant and the co-founder of How I Decide. Um, She's also a former professional poker player. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's a a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm really interested in what you have to say about uh, decision making and grit. Uh, You've you've recently wrote a book. Uh, Can you talk more about that? Uh, Yeah like a merging of sort of two paths that my life has taken. Mm. Uh, The first path was academic. So I started off uh, doing PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania, studying cognitive science. And particularly I was looking at how people learn. Um, And then I sort of took a left turn, actually illness intervened that made me have to take some time off from academics. And I took a left turn and became a professional poker player which is really a study of kind of like how do people make these real-time decisions where there are high stakes um, and there's like a lot of uncertainty because there's luck and you can't see the other players' cards. And so uh, I sort of, at some point at around 2000, about eight years into playing poker, I, I kind of merged the two together and that resulted in this book, um, Thinking in Bets. And that's really an exploration of, kind of how, how, do we, how do we learn and in a system where it's not clear why something happened? You know, like in the simplest example, like if I got in a car accident and that was the only information that you have, it would be really hard for you to know why did that happen? Was it because I was driving poorly? Was it because the other driver was driving poorly? Was it was something that was just unlucky? Like there was an oil spill on the road that like nobody could anticipate? Um, and you know, it, it just, it, it's, it's a really, really interesting problem and human beings in general really struggle with it. Um, and so the book is not just what is that problem and why do people struggle with it, but trying to offer some practical solutions to really kind of get better at that problem. That's really interesting. I've just re- recently been reading the book Creativity Inc. Uh, and another one called Loon Shots and both of them talk about mm. that, which are like randomness is something that human beings know is out there, but because of its nature is very difficult for us to work with because we 
uh, as you as you talk about the there are patterns that we create in our heads um, because you know the rustling in the trees that could have been a tiger at one point so we automatically assume it should be safe that the next time it's going to be a tiger as well um, but that might be not be true no yeah I, I think that I think that it's a it's a whole like it, it's a converging of a lot of different issues so first of all what there's all sorts of ways in, in which uncertainty wreaks havoc. And there's all sorts of ways in which I think that human beings, first of all, in, in one category are kind of designed to overfit, right? So that's like an overfitting problem. But also we're designed to not accept it. Because I think that this idea that, that we go through the life thinking, wanting to feel like we have control over how things turn out. Mm. Right. Like the idea that just the world happens to us randomly, which in large part it does, right. That the world happens to it randomly. I think it's, it's really hard for us to accept, particularly it's really hard for us to accept on the success side. So it's easier for us to success, mm. you know, accept when things don't go well, right. Like if something doesn't go well for me, it's a little easier for me to be like, well, that wasn't, that wasn't in my control. Think about it on the success side, right? Like who wants to say, um, you know, I got into Harvard by sheer luck, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you go tell me the person who's going to just say that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that we have, we have this illusion of control. We like to believe that we're masters of our own destinies, particularly when those destinies lead us to a good place a little bit more. And then on the overfitting side, uh, well, we have this overfitting problem, which is what you described, which is really can be summed up as that's a type one error that it's a false positive. You believe something is connected that isn't necessarily. And that really comes out of if I sit and think, well, let me do like a a controlled experiment about whether this is actually a tiger. You've already been eaten by the time your experiment is done. (laughs) Um, But then there's actually two other reasons. I think that um, we kind of are, are more believers, right? So what's interesting is that I think that the certainty falls on the believing side much more than the non-believing side. Cause you could imagine we could default to not believe anything mm. Mm. and we could have certainty around non-believable. I'm sure that this thing isn't true mm. or you could, so there's two ways to overfit, right? One is I'm sure this isn't true. And the other is I'm just going to act as if it is. Mm. So when you hear the rustling in the leaves and you think it's a tiger, that's I'm, I'm acting as if it is. But then there's two other reasons I think that we do that. Um, reason number one is that uh, mostly for the history of our species, um, we actually couldn't form beliefs about stuff that we hadn't experienced for ourselves. Interesting. Because we didn't have language, right? So we didn't, we didn't really form abstract thoughts. So um, if I saw a tree, I saw a tree. Mm. Right. So I shouldn't Mm. really think, does that tree exist? Is it true? You know, it's like, I'm not, I, I, one would assume one isn't hallucinating very often. And so uh, therefore you just go, okay, it's a tree, but now it's, there's a shift, right? Which is that now we can communicate by language and you can tell me about a tree I've never seen in my whole life. Mm. So you can say, Hey, I was in this other place and there's this very big tree there. Mm. And what happens is as sort of evolution does is it doesn't like take your, your brain out of your head and say, okay, let me sort of rework this because now there's this whole other belief system. 
we can form beliefs abstractly. And instead it's like, well, I know how to form perceptual beliefs. I see a tree, therefore it exists. And so now when Stuart tells me about a tree, I'll just, that's the same. And I treat it the same as if I had seen it with my own eyes. And so we default to believe there. And for people who are interested, there's really wonderful work from um, Dan Gilbert, who mm. people know from Stumbling on Happiness. He's also in those Prudential com commercials, by the way. <laughs> um, but in the 90s, he did work on this showing that our default is, is basically to believe what we hear. Mm. Um, so that, I think that's number two is this, this problem of like, we don't treat uh, things that we see with our own eyes uh, subst substantively differently than things that we hear with our own eyes, so to speak, mm. right? Um, and then, the, yeah, and then I think the third thing that's uh, true as well is that um, think about like, what would human discourse look like if when you and I talked to each other, I approached you as neutral? In other words, I was completely agnostic as to whether what you said to me was true or what you said to me was false. Mm. What, what would our talking to each other look like at all? That'd be weird, right? Particularly like within a, a tribe. So if, if I approached you with skepticism, if I, for example, if I assumed that what you were saying was lying or I said it's equally possible that you tell me the truth or tell me a lie, now when we're in a tribe and you say to me, uh, there are people who are coming to attack our resources. Uh -huh. And I'm like, hmm, well, are they really coming to attack her? I don't know because this could be true or false. I'm really not sure that's not going to be particularly good for human discourse, right? It's not going to be good for our survival. It's not going to be good for keeping the tribe cohesive with a single purpose. So for the purposes of human discourse, it's also, you know, I think that we also sort of default to this certainty mm -hmm. as opposed to really embracing uncertainty in that way. Interesting. That's funny because uh, it's not a good idea. If there's a you know a tribe attacking us, it's not necessarily the best idea to sit around philosophizing about the nature of the tribe attacking us. We must probably act and stuff like that. But then I guess it brings into something that humans also do is that we can think into the future and into the past and analyze the past mistakes and, and think about how we'll react in the future, which can then allow us to kind of in that moment make better decisions as well. So it seems like a feedback loop that that human beings have that other animals don't that what you're talking about, about this kind of being able to transmit symbols through language to other people and transmit the ideas of the tree itself to another person. Um, does your work touch on that at all as well? Yeah. So I, I, I definitely cover this in my book and, mm -hmm. and, you know, I say what, I mean, what's interesting is that, uh, that, that ability to transmit ideas to other people, um, can essentially work it's it's weird it's it's like this very weird thing so it has it has very good qualities to it mm. um in in the sense that uh i can now learn I, I, the 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 kind of like boundaries of the knowledge that i can now require mm. acquire are completely expanded right they mm. they become somewhat limitless right mm. which is amazing and it has the potential to allow me to be exposed to a variety of opinion that I wouldn't otherwise be exposed to, mm -hmm. which also has the potential to be amazing. It has a way for me to 
find out the truth of a matter irrespective of what uh, a leader, like, uh, you know, somebody who's like the leadership is like, is like coming down and trying to tell me as if it's, um, Mm. as if it's a given that it's the truth because I have spoken it. Right. So Mm. I have access to be able to, to figure all of this out. Right. So Mm. that, that's, it has this amazing potential to allow a a level of truth seeking that isn't, isn't really available otherwise. So, uh, I can experience things beyond my own senses. I can gather up all sorts of information. I can get, uh, exposed to all all manner of opinion Mm. and it creates this really beautiful like horizontalness to the ability for me to gather information Mm. the the problem is though that the way that our minds are built is so toward uh, a little bit like run away it's a tiger number one um i need to be cohesive with a tribe I need to feel like I belong to a tribe. I need to feel like I'm distinct from a tribe. Um, I believe what the tribe tells me. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I process the world is driven by my belief structure as opposed to my belief structure is formed by the information that I process. So it, it works in kind of a the wrong direction that what ends up happening is that when we get into groups, it tends not to be, it tends to not be exposing us to a variety of opinions, but putting our own opinions on steroids and our own beliefs on steroids and reinforcing our beliefs. Um, and I think that that's sort of for two reasons. One thing is that uh, we don't like to be what's uh, epistemically open, which just means to have knowledge that is not certain, right? That we're not certain about. Um, That doesn't feel good to us. We don't like the idea that like, I'm not sure, I don't know. Uh, I I think partly because we wanna know that we're supposed to run away from the lion or we wanna know that what, what, what we're being told is true. So we like epistemic closure. So we like to be certain either it's a yes or a no. Um, and then the other thing is that we like, it feels good to have our beliefs reinforced. Mm. So kind of going back to like one of the things that you said about one of the things that human beings have that's really unique is not just this ability to communicate about ideas that are abstract, right? Like I can, I, I can transmit knowledge from me to you mm. in a way that isn't true of other animals. But, but what you said, I want to just cling to for a second, is this ability to sort of project into the future and imagine that we'll still exist in the future. And I think what's, what I find so fascinating is that if I were to ask you, like, hey, do you want to be smarter and more knowledgeable and have more accurate beliefs in the future? Would you like future Stuart to be of that variety? I assume you would say, yes, of course. And then if I just said to you, well, do you think that in order to do that, in order for future you 10 years down the road to be, you know, smarter, more accurate, have a better belief system, know more about the world, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Do you think that in order to do that, that along the way, you're going to have to find out there that there are things that you weren't Mm. right about? Mm. And I think your answer to that would also be yes. Mm -hmm. And here's where I think that we get into a conflict. 
is that while if I query you on that, you'll say, yes, that's true. Like obviously along the way, I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to have to realize I was wrong about stuff and blah, blah, blah. In the moment with your conf when you're confronted with the possibility you're wrong, it's so painful that you do all sorts of cognitive gymnastics mm. to try to view that not as wrong, to try to hold on to the belief that you have and kind of swat that away. And in that sense, I actually view a lot of what happens with learning and a lot of what happens with people's own journeys as a competition between the present version of you and the future version of you. And they're like in a hand-to-hand -hand combat all the time. Um, and so essentially, when you're learning, pain is an, a, a, a necessary part of learning, essentially, that there will be pain because you're updating your model and part of you wants to be right. And that part of you that wants to be right has very good reason for wanting to be right because if you were wrong, it would mean death by tiger or death by whatever. Um, and so we've baked into it. And so now learning something kind of takes, as you said, hand to hand combat with that part of you that's saying, no, no, be safe, be certain, uh, or you'll die. And so now we're in this place where in, mo in modern civilization, where the threats to our survival are not as all the time. It's not like we're, we're constantly being threatened by things that, um, all of us, although there are things that feel like they're threatened to us, like, like a boss yelling at us or our parents, uh, getting angry or all these different things. So I, I, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, well, yeah. And I think, I think that, I think that we view ideas that are different from our own as a threat. Mm. Like, I think that the real tigers, you know, that are rustling now are ideas that don't agree with you. Because I think that when we think about, you know, how do we construct our, our identity, right? Like who we are as a human being, it's woven out of our beliefs, right? Like that's, that's literally the fabric of our identity. So what happens when you pull at one of those threads, right? It's like you're sort of tattering your identity. And um, so when somebody holds a belief that is different than yours, obviously future Stuart would say, please listen to that because maybe, maybe it turns, you know, maybe this is going to help us be smarter if we listen to this. But present Stuart is saying, you're trying to tear a hole in my identity. You're like, you're trying to tear a hole in who I am. And so that now becomes like the tiger that you have to push away. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a lot of what the battle is. It's like, we just, that feeling of attack of somebody else's ideas. And I mean, gosh, if you want to know, like if, if you just want to see how attacked people feel by ideas that are different than their own, just spend a, two seconds on Twitter mm -hmm. <laughs> and see what the reactions that people have when someone just merely disagrees with them. And someone can disagree with them in a, an incredibly polite way, right? They can be like, oh, well, have you considered this mm. other thing? Or, oh, actually, I kind of view it this way. And not like, they're not like coming at you and being like, you're an idiot for what mm. you believe. Like, I'm saying something in the nicest way possible that just happens to disagree with you. And you'll see there's all these responses, which then are like, you're an idiot, you know, mm -hmm. these overreactions where it suddenly becomes this huge explosion of like, and you're like, whoa, what happened? And it's like, literally the tiger jumped out of the, mm. you know, jumped, mm. jumped out of the leaves. Like that, that's kind of what people feel like. It's this barrage. It's this, 
you know, missiles being lobbed at your identity and, 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 and who you are. And you have to like deal with that incoming. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with that incoming by like sending, I guess, like attacking back. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes uh, people on Twitter are reacting to something that they think that the person said rather than the thing that they actually <laughs> said as well. Yeah. Well, yes, this is also often very, very, very true. This is often, a, it's like they hear it in a particular way or they're viewing the world through a particular frame mm. where they, they're trying to see it in a, in a particular way so that something that seems like relatively innocent is interpreted as an attack. Um, yeah. I mean, I think mm. that, you know, oftentimes they end up attacking a straw man version of whatever the person said. Like I think there's all sorts of ways in which we aren't making sure that we really understand like what the intent of what the other person said was, or that we really understand what, what the argument was that they had. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of the idea. It's put forward by a lot of people. A lot of people talk about this, like Julia Gallif talks about this, like Sam Harris talks about this, um, Mm. that before, before you go to enter into some sort of dispute with somebody else, state their case in a way that they'll, they would say to you, wow, you actually kind of stated that better than I possibly could have. And do iterate that until they say, yes, that is what I intended. Mm. And then at least that way, you know, that you're not, you're, you're, you're not like, I guess, tilting at windmills, you know, like Don Quixote <laughs> or something. Right. It's really interesting because that also brings in a sense of uh, technology. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm imposing this on, on what we're talking about, but you mentioned it a little bit uh, ago when somebody writes something on Twitter or writes anything in general, we are, we lack a lot of context, which we would mm. normally get in a conversation like what we're having. And tone. And tone as well. Tone, yeah. facial expressions. Mm. Yeah. So and so forth. I just got in a tiff with like my brother just because it was, you know, I said something in email and he didn't understand that I was being sarcastic. <laughs> and so he replied to me seriously. Mm. Um, and I, my response was, did you really think that I didn't know this thing? Like I was being sarcastic about something that was a math thing Mm. where the math was very simple and I was just being sarcastic as if like, I didn't know. And then he actually wrote out like the answer about what the math was. And then I got insulted (laughs) because I was like, how could you think that I don't know this basic math? (laughs) And then he goes, because sarcasm doesn't come across an email. Right. And it's like, yes, you're right. You're right. And then we made up. (laughs) And and that's happening all the time to people. And so, And, and, and you mentioned something earlier about how we can create, uh, we can transmit abstract ideas and this opens us up to an infinite, almost infinite creative knowledge an access to almost infinite creative knowledge. And then I want to ask about technology. And now not only do I have um, this ability to go to say the village elder or the shaman or whatever and ask him about him or her about what's going on. I now can go to Google and I can find like 1500 different experts on this, on this subject. And it's like, now we have this infinite grasp of or infinite access to human created thought. And what do you think about the effect of technology and where are we going to this? And not only Google as well, but also Twitter and, and these other and Instagram where we can, where we can reach out to a large group of people um, and find the experts and like, you know, we found each other on Twitter and I can, I can reach out to you directly and like access your whole, your whole life's wisdom uh, through this podcast. And then we're creating this other piece of content, which people can find. So what do you think about this? Where are we going with this? 
So, you know, I'm, I, I think, I think I, I have mixed feelings. Mm. I'm both positive and negative on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm very positive on it for really for all the reasons that you just stated, right? Is that, um, so I think about a lot about information liquidity. So, you know, one of the big sources of uncertainty that we have is that there's just all sorts of stuff we don't know. Um, so we, we and, and here, here's the category of things that we don't know. Uh, category one is things that we think we know that aren't quite correct, mm-hmm. right? So, we, and we just don't know that it's not quite right. So, so that would go under the category of like, for example, uh, if way back in the day, you thought that the sun revolved around the earth uh, and you just happened not to know that that belief needed some updating. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and we have all sorts of beliefs like that, that need updating. And we can think about like, actually, if you think about uh, the sort of like flow of like the, the, uh, the progress of human sort of knowledge and human ideas, you can actually see that um, in action. So for example, uh, in the eighties, everything was like, low fat, low fat, low fat, low fat, don't worry about sugar. So there were, everybody was sort of eating according to that. And they didn't necessarily realize like actually that that belief needs to be updated. And you, so that's sort of on a, on a like collective scale, but on an individual scale. So that's kind of number one. Number two is there's a whole bunch of stuff that we uh, don't know, but we're totally aware we don't know it. So as an, like, I don't know what the size of the universe is. I don't think that anybody does. Um, and so that's a thing that I don't know, right? I don't know what the mass of the earth is, mm-hmm. but I know that I don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as long as I know that I don't know it, uh, it could be, I, I, can, I could go find it out, right? I mean, maybe not the size of the universe because nobody knows that, but at least I know that nobody knows that, right? So, um, so I can go and get that. And then there's this whole category of things I don't know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, that, that's all. so we can sort of think about three categories. And and that this all kind of comes into this idea of like how liquid is the information market. So I, I think about like, again, thinking about the course of human history, mm. if I live in a tiny little uh, village, like it could be a medieval village and there's like one doctor who I guess would have been a barber. Um, <laughs> and he, he just knows about bloodletting. I don't, I don't have any way to go find out whether what he told me people agree with in general. So this is, this is an illiquid information market because I have no way to access the information. I can't get it. Um, and, and also there, this creates like a real information asymmetry. Like he has knowledge that I don't have. Um, I have no way to like check my knowledge against his, um, against this medieval barber medicine guy, whatever. Um, and, and even if you think about, uh, before the internet, if I lived in a small town in America that only had one doctor, I, I would have been in the same problem. I mean, hopefully the doctor would have been better educated mm. than a barber in medieval times, but you know, a doctor in a small town, like she might, you know, sh- she's it. Like, how am I supposed to find out unless I can travel somewhere? I've got no other doctor maybe to ask. Mm. So one of the things that the internet does is it, it kind of solves that liquidity problem, right? Like it, it creates this big market of information where yes, in the town that I live in, there might just be one doctor, but I can go and I can look on uh, a whole bunch of different places. Um, even if it's just WebMD or whatever, like I can, I can just go look stuff up 
no, I can to, access doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, um, uh, medical um, telemedicine as well. You can right, sit. exactly. Yeah. But go, go on. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, and I think that's incredible, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely positive on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is that it reduces the ability of there to be uh, control of infl- information flow. Mm-hmm. So like, I think there was a real, there was an example and I'm probably going to completely butcher it, but um, uh, in China, um, they, tr- they, for a long time, they, they basically had like a firewall that wouldn't allow outside information into China. Mm. Um, but then with the rise of technology, people could share within China. So this created more ability for there to be less control of the information that people had. And, and what got uncovered was that there was, uh, there were a whole, all sorts of problems in the way that contracts were awarded when it came to building of public buildings. Mm. And, you know, like uh, there was something that happened where I think it was a school that collapsed. And prior to this information sharing, um, this problem of like graft wouldn't have been uncovered because there would have been control over that information getting to people. Um, but because of information sharing that then uh, pe- people sort of found out about it and it actually changed the way that I think there, there was more scrutiny on like building contracts and then buildings were actually built in a safer way mm. because people got to kind of share that information. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, you could think about it as uh, you know, back in the day there was like a town crier and this was, that was your news or uh, the way that um, if you look at um, uh, in the Roman empire, there was an amphitheater and people would go in the morning and then somebody would stand up and tell them the news. And that was the only way for them to really get news from like the outside world and to kind of know what was going on. So there's incredible control. And in, in this particular case, obviously government control, of the information that's getting to people, which now everybody can get that, you know, everybody can get that information, which I think is amazing and, mm-hmm. and wonderful. I think that some of the recent examples where there were like very short clips of videos that people reacted to, and then people posted the whole context where you got sort of the, the whole video got posted. Yeah. And now people can go sort of look at that for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that that kind of thing that wouldn't have happened before yeah. is also amazing. Right. It might have been before that you would have seen that little clip and that would have been it. And then it would have never been, you know, it would have Mm -hmm. never been corrected in the history books or whatever. And then now you get the whole context Mm. and then you can judge for yourself what what that is. So that's all on the really good side. Mm. What's the downside? Yeah. So the downside, I think, is there's a couple of ways in which I think there are big downsides to it. Um, The first is that there's a lot of work that's been done, which shows that more information at some mm. point doesn't actually add a lot of value. It just adds a lot of confidence. Mm. <laughs> so we become really overconfident on our belief as we start piling information on. It doesn't actually create more accuracy on our part. And then what happens is that once you're overconfident in your beliefs, your, uh, the way that you process new information is actually now distorted much more than if you're holding that belief much more loosely. So the, the more strongly we hold a belief, the less we're actually going to be open to new information. Um, and I think that because, because there's so much information, in some ways it can give us an illusion of knowledge 
of, you know, the strength of our knowledge that isn't actually accurate to what this, what, what the accuracy of our knowledge actually mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it creates a lot of overconfidence. Like I know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and like, there's a couple of places that you see this, like there was just recent work done that showed that, uh, when you looked at people who held the most extreme views in politics, they were the people who were the most informed. Mm. <laughs> interesting. And what's in, right. And, and what's kind of interesting about that is the one thing that I'm, I'm kind of like, just from a logical standpoint, I feel um, just seems like logically to, to, to be like the most likely scenario is that if two people who are very well informed hold opposite and equally extreme views that the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Mm. Right. I'm assuming they're equally well informed. Mm-hmm. And if they hold opposite and, and equally extreme views, it's probably somewhere in the middle. But what we can see is that people sit, the more that they get, the more they sit out at the extremes. And I think that that's because they become, it's this circular problem, right? Which is motivated reasoning. So they start to gather information they start to become more confident. They start to become overconfident. Those beliefs then drive the new information that they're searching for. And they're searching for information that confirms the beliefs that they have. When they're confronted with information that disagrees with them, it's easier for them to refute it mm-hmm. because they've got other statistics and other data that, tell, that can tell kind of a strong data story against the information. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that they start to, it, it starts to sort of like, build on itself to extremize what they believe as they become more and more sure and off to the side, mm-hmm. whichever side it is. Um, and that's something that we see on both sides of the aisle, right? So I, I think that that's a problem. And then I think the, the other thing is that uh, all of this information that's out there, it's not like people are exposing themselves to it equally it's a little bit choose your own adventure, right? <laughs> so if I only want to talk to people who agree with me, I can do that. If I only want to go search out information that agrees with me, because there's so much information out there, it's not like I can find like one article that agrees with my opinion. I can go find a gazillion of them. Mm-hmm. I can go find whatever Reddit I want, where it's all people who are kind of talking to themselves, I guess, a little bit, right? I mean, they're, they're sort of like talking to other people, but not really. They're just mm-hmm. kind of talking to themselves. And so because you can choose your own adventure, I feel like you can, it's a little bit easier to isolate yourself from other people's opinions. And then the other thing that I think worries me is that when we're talking to each other, it's much harder for me to just be rude and like not listen to you and, and tell you that you're an idiot for your beliefs. But when we're sitting in an internet forum of any kind, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or whatever, um, I, I don't have to see you as a, per, as a human. Mm. So I think that I can just sort of like swat you off and, and, and not listen to you and insult you or, you know, like I can just be much more like ad hominem yep. in the way that I communicate with you. Uh, because I don't, I'm not facing you. I don't have to see you. I don't, I don't have to see your face. I don't have to view you as a person who's just like me. Mm. Um, so it's like, I, it's, I see these really amazing things about it. And then I see these kind of like, ah, oh, I don't know stuff about it. And I don't know 
you know, where I land on that, I, it's, I, I wouldn't take it away mm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because you were talking about the, uh, what I view as a one to many media form, which existed in the, in the auditorium in Rome. And it has basically existed ever since the written word, okay. uh, which because the people with the resources had the time and, and, the, and the capacity and the skill to write and they could then write their view, which then became the, 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 the popular view. And that happened all the way to the radio. I used to think that the radio was the first example of that kind of one to many source of, of um, the legitimacy and trust but then the the radio then you know came from the written word or kind of as an extension of the written word and that 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 medium and then yeah the tv which even further increased that and now we've had this radical switch very quickly to a many-to-many uh forum of 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 thing but then we've lost that sense of legitimacy and trust and so now people don't know who to trust anymore except for themselves i guess uh or people that they kind of view as like themselves so it's like going back to that that decentralized tribal nature um really interesting what what do you think about that do you agree or disagree or um yeah i mean i think that i i do think that it's confusing Mm -hmm. and what i think has happened I think partly because I, I think that as human beings, like we really, we, we tend to think in dichotomies that there's sort of been a confusion, right? Which is, it used to be that people were like, well, there are experts and this is where we get our information from it, experts, it, whether it was like Encyclopedia Britannica or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, I'm going to go, I'll go look in Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. and, this will, and I will find out what the experts say about this and then i would say beginning with like cable access television Mm -hmm. where sort of people were like well i can just go to my local thing and have my show Mm -hmm. um more and more it's harder to discern kind of who's an expert and who's not and and i think that along with that there's been a confusion of what's opinion and what's fact and i see this a lot of the time like when people are quoting newspapers i saw this just recently where there was an opinion piece Mm -hmm. in the washington post and then someone tweeted something about do you see this is what the washington post see thinks of course but that's not true because they this isn't like a fact-based article this was like a hosting of an opinion piece and so i don't know that we have such a good distinction anymore between what's opinion and what's fact and then i think that along with the democratization of, of sort of information and the ability of anybody to be able to have a platform and deliver information, which again, I, I think there's a lot of amazing and positive things that go along with that. There's been an eroding of understanding that there is value to expertise. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think there's been this idea where people are sort of approaching it saying, well, I don't really know what to think because like everybody has an opinion and I don't know whose opinion is better than anybody else's opinion. And so therefore, I guess I can just sort of think whatever I want to think. Um, and I think that it's much more nuanced, nuanced than that, right? I think that for some things, find out what sort of everybody thinks and figure that out. But then for other things, like, does a vaccine work, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I, I'm not, I shouldn't be going to an internet forum. I should be trying to find out what scientists say about whether, the, whether vaccines work. Mm. Um, because that really requires expertise and an understanding of the immune system that, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't done my 
work on. And so I should believe what the experts say. Mm. And what I think, what I think is kind of interesting is that I think the part of the problem, I mean, going way back to like what the title of my book is, is that what are the stakes, right? So it, indeed, it is true that if I don't necessarily like really try to think about what's this distinction between, you know, at what an expert says and a non-expert, when is it okay for me to sort of listen to the crowd? When should I listen to an expert? How am I thinking about uh, how I'm approaching the information that's available to me on the web? Am I making sure that I'm listening to all variety of opinion with an open mind? Mm. Or am I approaching it, you know, looking for an echo chamber? Like all of these things that are sort of up to me in terms of the way that I'm processing the information or approaching it. While it's true that I could say that if I am better at that, that the future version of me is going to be better off for that. Again, there's a, there's competition, right? It's like this combat um, for what feels good to me in the moment. And here's what feels good to me in the moment. I know what's true. I'm really smart. If you disagree with me, that's an attack on me. So therefore um, you're an idiot. Um, I like to, I like to hear people who think the same thing that I do, do because that really affirms mm, makes my own feel good makes me feel good right exactly uh i don't like to go seek out stuff that doesn't agree with me and i want to believe in the power of my own opinion and the power of my own beliefs and the power of how smart i am mm. and i think that it's because there's this gap between the connection that we have as human beings between the person i am today and the person i am in 20 years such that i don't feel the stakes I don't feel like it's a really high stakes decision the way that I approach information in the moment, mm -hmm. even though it is because it really matters for who I'm going to be in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And if I can, if I can make it so that I feel the stakes, all of a sudden people will um, uh, default to going to the expert. So like, as an example, um, if I were to say to you, uh, Hey, um, are you willing to jump off of this building? Hmm. You would defer to experts <laughs> about how high the building could be in order for it to be safe. Because now I've made you have, have stakes in the moment. Like there, it's high stakes in the moment about what's true and what's just opinion. Mm. So you're not going to like look to your friends and say, well, what's your opinion about how tall the building can be? Mm. Like what's the max tall that this building could be where I can jump off of it and not like, you know, break all the bones and shatter mm -hmm. my leg. Mm -hmm. You're not going to go, Hey, let me just go ask a bunch of people. You're going to say, let me ask people who have expertise in, in, in what's safe for the human body in, in this particular situation. Mm -hmm. But it's because I've made it matter to you, like literally in that moment. So that's the thing that I, I really, I, I think about a lot is how do you sort of bridge that gap? Because I think that if you bridge that gap, in a lot of ways, that would take away a lot of what I see as the downsides of this kind of free information market that's available to us. Because I think that it would cause people to approach the information market mm -hmm. in a way that, that was more likely to move them toward whatever their future goals are. This goes into an interview I just published today with the Director of Development at the Long Now Foundation mm -hmm. about essentially how... Um, 
we as human beings, as technology rapidly um, starts to change uh, the inputs, we have to really make it intentional, our relationship with technology and make our relationship with technology very intentional and really define the boundaries of it, just like you would do with any normal, healthy relationship. And that's the, that's the way that we have to start looking at it with technology. It's not technology. It's not us. It's our relationship between the two that are, that's the key to where to work to. Right. Exactly. And I feel the same way about, about the information market. Mm. It's not like, is the internet good or bad? You know, and it's not us. It's what is the relationship that we're creating as individuals between mm. us and the information? Mm. Because that, that's what it, we have. We get to, make some decision. I mean, some of it is obviously just like, this is the way we're built for sure. But we do, we can decide things about the way that we're going to approach information. Mm. We can decide things about what we consume and how we consume it and intentionally having more skepticism toward what comes in, mm. being more open and, and in particular intentionally seeking out uh, those who, uh, disagree with us and uh, want to engage with us in an ingenuine way, not in a provocative way, right? Like I don't have a lot of information and I mean, I don't have a lot of um, a desire to uh, on either side of anything to engage with provocateurs mm. who I don't think are arguing in good faith, mm. but assuming someone is arguing in good faith, which I, I make that assumption about most people, um, you know, how much am I intentionally saying I want, I want to be engaging with people who disagree with me who are arguing in good faith because that, that's the way forward for me. Mm. And that's that exactly that it's the same thing that what, what you just said. It's like, it's the relationship. What, how are we thinking about that relationship and how are we thinking about how we approach it? And, and, and I would say also like, what are the boundaries of the relationship? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm. What is it that we, we want to engage in and what don't we want to engage in and so on and so forth. So like, I just told you a boundary for me, mm. right? Like I don't want to engage with provocateurs. Mm. I don't, I don't, that's not, it's not good for me. It's not mentally healthy for me. And so I don't want to do that. So that's a boundary that I've set mm. around that, you know, within the, the, within the way that I interact with the information marketplace. So it goes back to the age old wisdom, know yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, We've got about uh, eight minutes left, uh, and there's one question that's been kept on repeating through my mind as we talk. And are, has anyone studied the outliers? Because you talk a lot about all this information or all the all these things that we're talking about. It leads to essentially a better relationship with these these inputs. And has anybody done a study on the outliers who do this either naturally or who have learned how to open themselves up to disagreements or how to open themselves up to these to these alternate viewpoints? Yeah, so I think that if people are interested in seeing some of the work that's done on that, I, I would look at uh, Keith Stanovich mm. has done a tremendous amount of work on, on what's called active open-mindedness and, and how that works as a feature. Um, and then also I would say that uh, with Phil Tetlock with super forecasting, mm. um, really looking at what, what is it that these super for so, so super forecasting looks at people who are particularly good at uh, thinking about forecasting geopolitical events, right? Mm. And then also other types of events as well, right? So they're, they're just very good at thinking about, if I think about the future, what's the probability of X or Y occurring? And so they, they have a lot of the properties that like Astanovich would be talking about. Like they, they, they tend to be very actively open-minded. Um, and so 
I think reading that book is really great because what it shows you is what, what's happening. Like what are the habits of mind that this particular type of person has mm. that allows them to be pro- approaching the world and approaching information in this particular way. So mm. I think that those are the two big sources um, that I would be looking at for me. What I feel like is that um, I want to go back to something that you said way in the beginning, which is that you said, okay, so I, uh, problem is that you've got this pain there's there's pain in Mm. in what you're feeling right now um Mm. and for me i think that's part of the key is to redefine what causes you pain and what doesn't cause you pain Mm. right so um as an example like let's say that we're having a normal interaction and you say something that i think is factually incorrect in normal cocktail party etiquette, I might not point that out to you because it, it might be considered rude or whatever, and you'll it, it will make you not feel very good and whatnot. Now, notice that you've now missed an opportunity to uh, update your beliefs because I haven't provided you with something because I've just sort of let it slide. But what if you and I have an agreement, right, which is that you said, Hey, Annie, if you, if you hear me say something that you think is factually incorrect, Mm -hmm. I want to let you know that not telling me is the thing that does me harm. Like Mm -hmm. if I find out later that you, uh, you knew that I thought something that wasn't correct and you didn't tell me Mm -hmm. that would be harm for me. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you can, you can think about that. You can change the way that you view admitting mistakes. So for, for, for most of us, it's like, it, it's very painful to admit a mistake. If I have trained, if I've trained the way that I think and particularly doing this in coordination with somebody else who's giving me the right kind of feedback and the right kind of, kind of reinforcement for this, that when I go up to you and you say, you know what, I, I, I believe this, but I actually think that maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I wasn't quite right about this. And I think I've changed my mind mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And you totally want to engage with me about that then I'm now going to start to train that new habit of mind so that what happens is that I get a really good feeling in the moment, in the here and now from going up to you and saying, you know, I, I thought this thing, and, but then I read this other study and I think it really disagrees with the thing that I said. Mm. And that starts to feel like really good for me. And what feels really bad to me is like the default of just like, Oh, they're just an idiot. Cause they don't believe with me. And in fact, if I were to say to you, that person's an idiot because of this stupid belief they have, hopefully you would call me on it and you as my friend would not reinforce that kind of behavior so that I would start to view that as, as a, that that would be what would cause me pain because I would get your disapproval for speaking like that. So we can make that kind of like, we can create that culture for ourselves. And actually speaking of Keith Stanovich, he, he actually... I, I think is one of the best like living, breathing examples of this because he, so he has this um, uh, scale that he does. He gives people, it's like a questionnaire, which um, measures active act, this quality of actively open-minded thinking. And he had found for a very long time that there was a negative correlation between actively open-minded thinking, open-minded thinking and religiosity. Mm-hmm. So, and this was like 20 years of his work. Um, where he had shown that like people who are more religious are less actively open-minded. But then somebody pointed out that 
they thought that it might be the way that the question was phrased. Mm. And so then they went back and they looked at it and they realized that the question was probably sort of like biased toward eliciting that type of response. So then they changed, they actually changed what was on the questionnaire and then lo and behold, they found out that it wasn't true, that there wasn't a correlation between the two. And he realized that, that it was the fact that the, the scientists on his team tended to be quite secular in their mindset and that that had now creeped into this scale. Mm. Well, what does he do with this information, right? He publishes a paper mm. and says, what? We're wrong. Like we've had this wrong for 20 years. Like our scale was biased. We think the bias is because we're all secular and that was, you know, bad on us. That I think is one of the most beautiful demonstrations that I've ever seen of like really living your principles mm. and feeling good about that kind of like public exposure for, for your ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that you, I really am a huge believer that you can train yourself to think that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. That, yeah, that's really good. I have a lot more questions, but I, I, I'd, I'd love to have you on again because this is really, this ties in exactly to what I love talking about. So, um, but so thank you so much. And how can people find, find out more about you, find out more about what you're working on? Yeah, thanks for asking me that. And I'm happy to come on again because this has been a great combo. Cool. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, so mainly if people go to AnnieDuke.com, mm. uh, it's kind of like an all-purpose place to find me. And the things you'll find there is a way to contact me. So one thing is that for real, I love hearing from people who have read my stuff, who have listened to podcasts that I'm on and whatnot. And I often get in very long conversations with them. Um, <laughs> uh, so if you, if you uh, fill out the contact form there and write, write to me, I actually do get all of those. And, and I really, really, I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not perfect but I try to respond to all of it um, because I find that I learned so much from those exchanges. Um, so that's not, there's a contact form there. The, the second thing you can find there is my newsletter, which goes out uh, once a week ish. The reason why I say that is I'm in the middle of a manuscript right now that's due in June for my next book. And so I'm a little slower mm. with the newsletter, but when I'm not in the middle of a manuscript, it actually goes out every week right now. It's been every sort of three weeks ish, I would say. Um, and that's generally about five pieces totaling um, about 3,000 words. So like, you know, 600 words a piece, which is really taking stuff from science, business, politics, current events, whatever, and taking this kind of framework, this way to think uh, and applying it. Mm. Um, and uh, it's free. Cool. You can find archives at AnnieDuke.com. Um, if you like it, please subscribe. I would love it if you subscribed. Um, and then... Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Annie Duke at Annie Duke. And then the other thing I really want to say is like, I hope that people will check out the nonprofit that I co-founded called how I decide. You can find us at how I decide.org. Um, and uh, we're actually just about to do a name change to the Alliance for decision education. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll be able to find it either way, whichever URL you want to search. And what we're doing is really trying to create energy and build the field around decision education for youth. Mm -hmm. So the idea that these kinds of things about like, what is a decision? How do you process information? How do you think about information? What's a habit? Um, how do you construct a decision? Uh, probabilistic thinking. Mm -hmm. These are all things that, you know, you're, we tend to get as far as the educational system is concerned much later in life. And we're really trying to build energy about getting this in much, much earlier in the process, certainly with a focus on middle school. Mm. Um, 
So I hope that people will go and, and look at that because we're really trying to create, we're really kind of trying to create a movement around that um, and getting people to say like that this is incredibly important stuff that we need to be teaching our kids. Uh, I wish I had that instead of uh, all the other crap I had <laughs> in school. Uh, well, that's what we think too. So <laughs> I'm glad that you agree. Um, yeah, we're trying to, I mean, you know, the, the idea that we're saying is like, uh, why are we teaching kids the quadratic equation before we're teaching them how to make a decision? Mm. And it's, it's not that like trigonometry may not be important to somebody, for example, at some point in their life, like particularly if you're going to be some sort of structural engineer, I would really love for you to know trigonometry. Mm. Um, but, you know, trigonometry, you know, algebra, um, you know, calculus, uh, we're teaching all of that, but we're not teaching really basic like statistics and probability and probabilistic thinking. We're not teaching people how to construct a decision, you know, Which how to think about them. their own habits. Yeah. Right. Which will lead them to figuring out whether they want to study trigonometry or not. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really, I, I, I wish you the best of luck with all the stuff you got going on. It sounds really cool. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Well, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that you reached out on me to me on Twitter, which is, which is, by the way, again, like one of the most wonderful things about this kind of democratization of like interactions and information and stuff is that we can end up having this conversation because, you know, we talk to each other on Twitter, which I think is incredible. So cool. um, and I'm happy to come on and have another conversation with you at another time. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.